So good to see you and be with you this morning as always. I see you guys are not running the marathon today. I don't know what's wrong with you, but you're not down there. I'm glad to not be there, although I wish I could run right now. Um, today is, uh, this weekend is Martin Luther King weekend, of course, and um, uh, we as a church uh, recognize that you cannot be a Christ follower and have uh, be any part of any sort of racial condescension or bias or uh, racism in any way. Uh, about a year or so ago, I read a, a lengthy, detailed biography of Martin Luther King Jr. and was really sort of blown away by uh, his courage and, and really giftedness in leading the fight against racial injustice in our society in the 1960s. And some of us are old enough to remember parts of that time, but uh, really it was sort of off the charts, and of course he gave his life for that cause. And the church of Jesus Christ ought to always be in the forefront of any fight against any kind of injustice, but certainly that would include racial injustice in our society. You know, I, uh, we dream to have more and more diversity of all kinds here at Woods Edge. Racial, economic, socioeconomic, uh, ethnic, uh, all kinds of diversity. And by God's grace, over the last five years, we've had more and more diversity, and we want that. But it would be naive for us to think that, you know, we've kind of arrived, we don't have any uh, racial or ethnic uh, bias or blindness uh, in us. And if those of you who have experienced some of that kind of bias or racism, you know, alert us when we have blind spots because we want to please the Lord in this area. So I just want to make that clear and know that's your heart too. Uh, stand with me for, to, as I read today's passage. We finish up Genesis 1 through 3, this foundational, foundational passage in all the Bible. We're on 314, 14 through 24, and there we read, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Church, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. All righty, as we move into this final passage, and this seminal passage on sin, let me, uh, 
uh, tell you a story to kind of bring us into it. First of all, a question. Now, this is a question for you serious sports fans out there. And I've got bright lights here, so I can't, it's hard to see your hands sometimes, but I can see you. By the way, if you're sleeping, you know, I'll really see you, so watch it. Um, I need a show of hands uh, of anybody here who knows the football coach named George O'Leary. All right. George O'Leary. Show of hands. Not too many. Okay, Mickey, you got it down. Jack, you got it. Anybody over on this side? Any women here know the name George O'Leary? Give me a shout out. I can't see you, everybody. No women. George O'Leary. <laughs> Is that Justin? Go back to students, buddy. All righty. Um, all righty. Uh, here's the story. George O'Leary. Okay, that's an Irish name. He grew up in an Irish household, and Notre Dame football was everything. Yeah. And, and his dream would be to, to coach Notre Dame. He goes to college, and he becomes a football coach. He coaches in the high school level, and then he, he, he becomes a, an assistant coach in the college ranks, and then he becomes an assistant coach for the San Diego Chargers in the NFL. And then he lands a job as the head coach of Georgia Tech. He turns around the program and wins year after year after year and so that his close friends, knowing his love for Notre Dame, uh, begin asking him, hey, when are you going to uh, coach the, the Fighting Irish? When are you going to become the coach of Notre Dame? You know, a dream job for him. Well, he keeps winning, and in the year 2000, he is named the NCAA Football Coach of the Year. You know, best college football coach in the land. A year later, in 2001, Notre Dame is looking for a football coach, and they narrow it down and decide they're going to invite George O'Leary to be their coach. Make the call, and he is beyond thrilled. December 8th, 2001, he accepts the job of head coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. A reporter does some digging into his resumes and finds out that there are some small lies there. There are some things there that weren't really true. He didn't really play college football. And he didn't really have a master's, and there are a couple of things like that that really wouldn't affect his current coaching, but it became enormous controversy because there was an issue of trust and integrity, and, you know, there was a controversy across the sports land about George O'Leary and those lies. Five days later, after so much anguish, to his great chagrin and disappointment, he resigns as the football coach at Notre Dame. It reminds me of the truth of the Scriptures in Numbers 32, 23. You can be sure that your sin shall find you out. Or in some translations, as on our screen, be sure that your sin will find you out. Do you know that's true of all sin? It may not be national news like with George O'Leary. It may not be dramatic like that. It may not even be immediate like that. But sooner or later, you can be sure that your sin will find you out. And the principle that we've been seeing in Genesis 3 is this, is that sin always hurts us. Sin always hurts us. Every time you decide to go your way rather than God's way, every time you disobey anything in the Scriptures, big or small, attitude or action, sin of omission or sin of commission, uh, you hurt yourself and you perhaps hurt others around you. 
you can be sure that your sin will find you out. All righty. We see this in Genesis 1 through 3, which is the passage in the Bible that introduces to us sin. Because in the first paragraph, 1 through 7, Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. And we know that as the fall, the fall of man into sin. Then in 8 through 13 that we saw last week, uh, we see the consequences of sin and two choices made as a result. Adam and Eve, their choice is to hide from God in fear. God's choice is to pursue them in love. God pursues them. In fact, we're going to see this at the end of the passage today, how God pursues us. Or more personally, he pursues you. He pursues you in love. You would not be here this morning if God had not pursued you. And then in our passage today, we're going to see the judgment upon three folks or three people. Uh, The serpent, power behind the serpent, Satan, the woman, and the man. We're going to take them in reverse order of uh, how God would deal with them. So in verse... 14, I'll come up on the screen. God is going to address the serpent. And there we read that the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, there's going to be two things cursed in our passage, not three. Satan will be cursed, and the snake. And the ground will be cursed. Adam and Eve will not be cursed. They will be judged, but there will be no curse from God upon them. Now the serpent is cursed, and the curse involves that he'll crawl on his belly, and you will eat the dust of the ground. I don't think that necessarily means that snakes did not crawl on the ground before that, but now it has meaning. It has special meaning. This is part of your judgment because you were a tool of Satan in this. Adam and Eve... Uh, Their judgments will be coming. Uh, The next verse moves from the serpent to the power behind the serpent, Satan, verse 15. And there God says, speaking to Satan now, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Many translations, between your seed and her her seed. He, her, her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there will be enmity, there will be hostility, there will be a a, a battle, a a, a division between you, Satan, and the woman, between you and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. And that would include all of us. We're part of the offspring of Adam and Eve. Uh, Who are the offspring of Satan between you and your offspring? Well, first blush, you might think, well, the demons, but the Scriptures never refer to Satan as their father. The Bible does refer to Satan as the father of some, some people. Do you, do you know who that would be? Uh, in John 8, 44, or John 8 something, uh, G- Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, your father the devil. So those who reject Christ, who are outside of Christ, really their father is not God in a salvific sense, in a salvation sense, but their father is the devil. So between the people who oppose the things of God And between God's people, there will be enmity. And between your offspring and her offspring. Now, the offspring would include all of us, but especially include Jesus Christ. We know that because the final two lines of verse 15, very important lines, he will move from the plural pronouns to a singular pronoun, he. Not they, but he, her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And most likely, I think almost certainly, That is a reference to Jesus Christ, her main offspring, the offspring of Eve. He, 
Christ, the coming Messiah one day, will bruise you, Satan, on the head. It'll be a fatal blow. You will bruise him on the heel, a non-fatal blow, almost certainly referring to the cross, to the crucifixion. As Satan moves the hearts of sinful men to crucify Jesus Christ, Satan, in effect, bruises him, bruises him on the heel because he will triumph over the grave. But Satan, in that very uh, death on the cross, he will deliver a fatal blow to Satan because uh, he will pro provide rescue from the sin and from the guilt and the bondage that Satan has brought on all mankind. So a first subtle reference to a Savior and to the Messiah. Hebrews 2.14 says of Jesus, through death, the cross, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's so ironic that Satan thought he had won a, a, a victory on the cross with the crucifixion, but it is in that very cross and death he defeats the devil because he pays for our sin and rescues us and saves his people. There was an old Puritan writer in the 1600s of England by the name of John Owen, and he wrote a book with a great title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. You and I uh, can have life eternal. Death in us can die because of the death of Christ for us on a cross. First faint reference in Genesis 3. Now, we saw as we started Genesis 3 sometime back, the spiritual battle. That's when Satan was introduced for the first time and temptation and sin and introduced for the first time. And we see that the spiritual battle is real, and we'll see it all through the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, but all through the Bible. Now, there are two mistakes to avoid there. On the one hand, we don't want to overemphasize the spiritual battle to the extent that we would say that, that, that Satan's the cause of all bad and wrong because there is human sin. We do mess up. We can't excuse ourselves. But on the other hand, we don't want to underemphasize the spiritual battle and ignore Satan and uh, his demonic uh, hordes. Uh, we want to recognize, yes, there is a spiritual battle, but we are not afraid because greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. We're not afraid because we know we can be strong in Christ and say no to the Satan. We are not afraid because we know that the victory ultimately is secure and we are secure in Christ's love. We are alert, but we are not afraid. All righty, that, that was the serpent and Satan behind the serpent. Now, verse 16, to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Here's judgment on Eve. The first two lines refer to Eve's role as mother, and the last two lines refer to her role as wife. So it's interesting that the judgment of Eve will affect her in the two vital areas of motherhood and marriage. When God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Probably every mother here could attest to the truth of those lines. The word pain could be translated as painful toil. It bridges the idea of pain and the idea of work, labor, toil. And our word for childbearing, childbirth, picks that idea up with the word labor. It's painful labor, painful work. We'll see the exact same word later used of Adam in another context. 
Another idea. The last two lines of verse 16 are noteworthy. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, that's enigmatic language to say your desire shall be contrary to your husband. What is he talking about here? Well, it'd be hard to know except in chapter 4, verse 7, in the context of sin, wanting to dominate Cain, uh, the same word is used, and it means a desire to dominate. So what God is referring to with Eve and the woman is that your desire to dominate your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so God's original ideal is that neither the man nor the woman dominate the other in marriage, but there is loving, sacrificial leadership by the husband. And the husband, as we see in Ephesians 5, which picks up on Genesis 2, uh, is to love and to cherish his wife, and uh, the wife, of course, is to love and cherish her husband. But part of the result of sin is this battle of the wills in marriage that every married couple has experienced to some degree. So often wives vie for power, try to dominate their husbands, and conversely, husbands want to dominate and rule over their wives. There's a power struggle. Neither was God's ideal in marriage. The biblical ideal is that we love and cherish one another in the context of the husband's loving servant leadership in the home. So the judgment included both childbearing and marriage. Now the judgment to the man is also going to affect him in his most characteristic area, and that is his role as provider. We see in 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground, not you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, same word as used with Eve, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And you already know that that Hebrew word for pain here could be translated pain, toil, or painful toil. And for the man, there is painful labor, toil, work uh, in farming and getting the crops out of the ground. Uh, most folks would take his pain over her pain, but there is painful toil. As we see in verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. At the start of chapter 3, if you were with us back then or if you remember from the biblical narrative, at the start of chapter 3, Satan, through the snake, approaches Eve in the garden. Later we find out Adam is standing right there. Satan basically convinces Eve that if she would eat of this fruit, she not only would not die, but that she would be like God, knowing good and evil. She'd be in the know. He is suggesting that God is holding back something that she really needs to be completely happy and human and fulfilled. That if you just eat this, uh, you will be happy. You'll be fulfilled. Was that true? Hardly. Hardly. Uh, what have been the results of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God? Well, it would include brokenness in their marriage, alienation, mistrust, fear of rejection in their marriage, guilt and shame, hiding from God, blaming one another, painful labor in childbirth, a battle for the wills in marriage, arduous work in uh, getting food, and ultimately the dust of death. Satan is a liar. And this is not a story for us just to kind of read through and say, hmm, or read through and, and gain a little knowledge. This is practical living for everyday life. 
And this is what God has for us here. He's saying this is how Satan works. This is how Satan has always worked. This is how Satan worked with Adam and Eve. This is how Satan works with you. Be ready and alert to his schemes. He will try to convince you that if you just disobey God, God's holding back on you, and, 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 and there's something really good for you over here. He is a liar, and he will bring you pain and dismay. And if we could just get it into our brains that every time we sin, we're going to hurt somebody, that somebody's going to include us, and it might include others. But God's way is always right. Be alert to the lies of the enemy. They're every day. They're every day. Now, I don't go around uh, trying to think, okay, is this a lie or is this a lie? This is what I do. I focus on obeying the Bible. Or obeying God. That's where we ought to focus. If God's word says it, it is for your life. Do it. Do it. You got to read it. You got to know it. You got to love it. And you obey it because herein God shows us how to live, how we were meant to live. All righty, one writer well summed up Genesis 3. Because everything that we see in Genesis 3 is going to be overturned by Christ. The motifs in the chapter should not be missed death, toil, Sweat, thorns, the tree, the struggle, and the seed. Those all will be traced to the other Adam who becomes the curse, sweats great drops of blood in bitter agony, wears a crown of thorns, hangs on a tree until he is dead, and is placed in the dust of death. And he does it all for us, for our life. For our... Thank God that the first Adam did not have the final word, but the second Adam does. Thank God that Satan did not get the final word, but God triumphs over it. And he did it in a way that uh, astounds us because it could not be done by us. We owed a debt we could not pay. So this is what God does. He himself steps out of heaven onto earth as God the Son. And he becomes a little baby, grows up to become a man, lives a perfect life. And he is crucified, and that is the whole goal of his life, to die in your place and mine, paying for your sin like you could not do. It is, it is the most, the gospel is the most incredible thing ever. It's amazing. Nobody could invent it. All right. There's a few concluding statements we'll briefly hit. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Hebrew for Eve is either life or living. Ironic that the name life comes after the sentence of death. But that gives us hope. There's hope for Adam and Eve. It's not the final word. Satan doesn't get the final word. There's hope. There's children coming. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember, uh, Adam and Eve, because they had shame and guilt, they covered their nakedness, they no longer trusted one another, brought a barrier between them, and so they uh, put this, you know, fig leaf chain together of some kind. Later on, God said, that won't do. Your attempts to cover your sin won't do. I will do it for you. And he covers them with animal skins. And we don't know exactly um, everything about that, but, but it would assume that animals were sacrificed, that blood was shed. Now, this is the first faint pointer in all the Bible to the cross and the atonement and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because pretty soon, in the Old Testament, we're going to have countless myriads upon myriads of animals slain, and each one 
is going to be a temporary substitute for sin, for man's sin. But let me tell you, the blood of a lamb or of a cow or of a bull could never atone for a human sin, a human made in the image of God. It cannot do it. It was a temporary covering until one day God himself would come down, the Lamb of God, and he would die on a cross for us. Those were just temporary coverings, all those endless sacrifices in the Old Testament. But here's a pointer that one day God would step, step out and he would shed his blood. And so no wonder John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, when he first sees him in John 129, those faithful words, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that includes your sin and mine. Incredible. God himself sheds his blood to pay for my sin. That is, he dies rather than me. Then 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, probably what was going on is that if Adam and Eve would have taken of the tree of life, that uh, they would have lived forever in their state of sin. And uh, God did not want that, so he removes them from the Garden of Eden with the tree of life in there, puts a cherubim, a special angel, higher angel to guard it with a flaming sword, and Adam is cast out of paradise until Jesus Christ wins our salvation and we get to go into paradise. It's interesting that later on God in the Old Testament had the Israelites construct a tabernacle according to very detailed specifications. Later it would become the replica for the temple. But the tabernacle in the Old Testament, one of the features that it had, God had them have this huge curtain separating the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies. And there in that holy of holies, there was an altar there. There's the ark there, and cherubim were carved up above it, and it represented the presence of God. And because it was so special, representing the presence of God, there was this massive curtain between it to say, uh, man, sinful man, cannot come into the presence of holy God. There, you are holy God. Now, on that curtain, God had the Israelites inscribe a pattern with certain figures. Anybody recall what that would be? The, the, the drawings on that curtain that were sewn on there, they were cherubim. Probably a reference to, to this passage in Genesis 3, those cherubim guarding the way to the holiness of God, just like the cherubim blocked the presence of man and woman coming back into the Garden of Eden. Now, those cherubim were later put on the temple curtain. And you recall that when Jesus Christ died and therefore paid for our sin, what God did to that curtain, what did he do? He ripped it in two. That great verse in the Bible, and the, and the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, saying, in effect, that the way to God is now thrown wide open. There is no longer a sin barrier between God and man, holy God and sinful man. But though we have access to God because our sins are covered. And we've got to see ourselves that way. Not as in our sin, but as our sins are covered. We are clothed in the shed blood and the righteousness, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Satan's lie will be, oh, you are so sinful, God could never use you. 
the truth of Jesus is there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You got to feel that. You got to believe that. You got to know that deep, deep in your hearts. It is the truth of God. Now, church, we see that uh, Genesis 3 is a tragedy. Unimaginable pain and havoc was brought into the world by our sin. And we live in a fallen world and full of sin and suffering and pain. However, the word of judgment in Genesis 3 is not the final word. The final word is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that death, we see the death of death. We have the possibility of life. God is still God. He still rules the universe. He is good, and he pursues you and me in love. Just as he pursued Adam and Eve in that garden, in love. Nothing they did to deserve it, but this is the heart of God. Nothing that you do to deserve God pursuing you in love, but this is the heart of God for you. Now let me just close with a brief little story that pictures God's pursuing love for you and pictures actually what God does for Adam and Eve here in the Garden of Eden. True story happened in northern Africa in a Muslim area. And uh, as a young college student, a woman by the name of Hava Ahmed, she was a Muslim student in North Africa. One day at her college dormitory, don't know if it was Egypt, Tunisia, somewhere there, she reads a Christian tract and decides to become a Christian, a follower of Christ. Her father is an Islamic ruler, an emir, and so she expected that when she went home, she'd lose her inheritance because of this decision to become a Christ follower. However, she was completely prepared, unprepared for what, had, what did happen when she told her family about becoming a Christian and that she had changed her name from Hava to the name Faith. Her father exploded in rage. Her father and her brother stripped her naked and bound her to a chair fixed to a metal plate for wh with which they intended to electrocute her. Faith asked them to at least lay a Bible on her lap. And her father responded, if you want to die together with your false religion, so be it. One of her brothers added, that will show you that your religion is powerless. So they bound her there in the chair, put the Bible on her lap. She was able to touch a corner of the Bible, and she later would say she felt a strange peace as though someone were standing beside her. Now, her father and brothers, you know, had get, got all this electric, electrocution method lined up, and then they plug the cord into the wall, into the outlet, and nothing happened. They try four more times with various cables and configurations, but nothing that they did could get the electricity to flow through that cord to electrocute her. Finally, her father was enraged and angry and frustrated. He hits her and screams, you are no longer my daughter, and he casts her out into the street naked. She ran through the streets because she had a friend in the town, ran through the streets, humiliated and in pain, naked. People looked at her more curious than shocked. Shaking and tearful, she knocks on the door of her friend's house who lets her in, clothes her, and gives her shelter. The next day, her friend asked the neighbors that what they had thought when they had seen Faith running through the streets naked. And they respond, what are you talking about? The girl had a beautiful white dress on. We asked ourselves why someone so beautifully clothed had to run through the streets. Hava would go on to begin full-time Christian ministry with a parachurch ministry reaching children. You know, God pursued Hava in love, just like God pursued Adam and Eve 
and you and me. God clothed Hava in the beautiful white dress, just like God clothed Adam and Eve in the skins representing his forgiveness, just like he clothes you and me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning we might think, well, wow, what an incredible story. And the things that are going on in the Muslim world are incredible. So many thousands of Muslims are coming to faith all over the world. But we might think, man, that'd be great to have a miracle like that. And yes, it would be. But a far greater thing has happened to us. God has clothed you in the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. And you are blameless and spotless forever. Yea, God. We celebrate that every week with communion. We remind ourselves afresh, taking the bread, the broken body of Christ, taking the cup, the shed blood of Christ, and that he dies in our place and we have life. Please stand with me. Lord, thank you for a Savior. Lord, thank you so much for forgiveness and life in you. Thank you, Lord God. We don't get into heaven because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And we just receive a Savior. Friend, if you're in the room, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, breathe that prayer here and say, Jesus, save me. Save me, Lord. I need it. He will answer that prayer. He's already answered that prayer before you even said the words. Church, be reminded of the truth of Scripture. That God's way is always best. Obeying God is your life. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Maybe if there's some area of sin that you're messing around with or playing around or allowing to your life right now, you just confess it to God and receive His grace. And ask Him for the power to obey Him. Lord, thank You for a Savior. Thank You so much. Thank You for the gospel. Amen.